0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And
1: this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
0: Shemiriads.
1: Creating Alternate History.
0: Mount Shasta's Lemurians.
1: And the latest, Rob Ford crackup. Pieces of Eight, from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games, is a pirate ship combat game played with coins.
0: Minted metal coins that clink in your hand.
1: And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just
0: coins made
1: out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And
0: you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest.
1: Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey.
0: Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies.
1: Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins.
0: When coins get blown to Kingdom Come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player
1: with a surviving captain coin wins.
0: One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table
1: to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also, a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground.
0: The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game.
1: For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award.
0: Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself.
1: How tragically Minnesotan of him.
0: Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant groundbreaking game.
1: But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now.
0: Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited time price includes shipping and handling.
1: Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins.
0: You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming.
1: It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming.
0: And right now, you can get a four-player pieces of eight package at a limited time, drop-everything price.
1: Shipping and handling
0: included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash
1: kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8.
0: Or follow the link in the show notes.
1: That might be best. The announcements over the Tannoy, the flip-flip-flip-flip-flip of exotic destinations, tell us that we are due for another travel advisory. And while we all know that the true and secret name of this hut is Ken or Robin makes Robin or Ken envious, I have to say, <laughs> that this is a particularly green...
0: Now, no, be fair, we're also making our listeners envious. Oh,
1: yes, but first, the, the envy must flow through me before it reaches our listeners. That's how it <laughs> works. Uh, well, that's so math.
0: I was envious of you before, Ken, that you got to go to a convention in France. You
1: got to go to Paris. I did. I got to go to lovely Paris, which is a lovely city, and I had a great deal of fun, but you got to go to Provence, and Provence, I had yes. somehow not processed that Chimeriad was in Provence, because you were saying you were flying in through Brussels, so I assumed it was up there in, in Champagne, which, while lovely and wine country and and a beautiful part of the world, is not actually, as it happens Provence. And so now... Well, actually,
0: also, I was not quite uh, (laughs) zeroing in the fact that it was Provence, because I knew that my final destination was Marseille. And those of you who know your French movies know that that's a a gritty industrial city. So somehow I was expecting something gritty and industrial. But guess what? It's in Provence, man. It's in Provence.
1: Well, Marseille is sort of in Provence as well. And it is... It is, definitely. it's 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 a great town. It is the Chicago of France. And I mean that advisedly. But you were in somewhere pretty close to A, I believe, up there by Avignon and all those places.
0: Uh, we, we, we did go to, to, to Aix-en-Provence. So the event itself, uh, Tremiriades. Yes, uh, let's is not a,
1: get ahead of ourselves.
0: <laughs> yes. Is a convention that owes its DNA to a uh, legendary German convention called Tentacles, uh, which uh, no longer exists under that name, but was held in a Bachrach, Germany, in the Rhine uh, wine region, in a uh, castle that has been converted to a youth hostel. And Shemiriads, now uh, inspired by the original uh, group that ran Tentacles, is very much like that, except French. So it is in its own castle. This is a Renaissance castle, not a medieval castle, and it's been converted to a sort of nature conservancy center for school kids and uh, not quite a youth hostel but people do stay at the castle over the weekend so it's this incredibly groovy site that's very amenable to role-playing and it's in this incredible countryside that uh, there's uh, as you drive to it you see all of these uh, you see occasional vineyard but you also see a lot of uh, herb farms you see a lot of lavender for example and so now, maybe the air just smells of lavender around the convention site, but I could have sworn that it actually smells full-on like Herbe de Provence. So well, that would make sense, right? It would absolutely make sense uh, that there, these were the herbs growing in the hills. But, so um, you just
1: felt like um, uh, rolling yourself in, uh, in the green sward and roasting yourself slow and low for a couple of few hours at 250?
0: There was a certain amount of uh, roasting and pickling that went on. Good. And, Good uh, in fact, uh, one of the other guests has a huge responsibility. Uh, there's one guest who is brought out to Shimeriad every time it unfurls. It unfurls every two years. And that's Charlie Crank, uh, yes. the honcho of Chaosium. And his duty, of course, is to, you know go to the odd Cthulhu panel and so forth. But really, they bring him there to barbecue for them.
1: Yes. Yes, because you have to bring an American if you're going to get barbecue. That's just good sense.
0: Exactly. Uh, And if it's Charlie Crank, all the better. Absolutely. So so that's his big job is the celebratory meal at the end of the event. But at any rate, it's about, say, around uh, 100, 150 people. And it's a fun, very uh, community-oriented time. And you really... This is one of those events where you really feel uh people's love of gaming and it was really great to be able to plug into the french gaming community Mm -hmm. and uh, i was a little worried going to france because i have zero french and uh, there were thoughts that you know a translator was secured for the panels but it turns out we didn't really need that much i ran a couple of games and people did an incredible job of uh, playing in English, even though English was not their first language. So, it was a delightful time. Uh, this is the sort of size event that I will run games at, something like Gen Con. It's, I don't think, a great use of my time to to block off four hours to run a game for four to six people when I can talk to dozens of people standing at the Pellgrim booth over that period of time. But something like this is a chance to run stuff for people. So, I ran a session of Hillfolk, and I think I garnered some more hill folk evangelists uh, from that yes uh, so that was uh, delightful and uh, it was once again uh, in an initials or con run of hill folk often the dynamic becomes about deposing the chief people did not choose to become the chieftain in this one there and so the chieftain as it always when i run it uh, and nobody decides to be the chieftain i make up a sort of ineffectual chieftain character named Greybeard, but this one turned out to be about deposing the shaman.
1: Ah! Someone's gonna be deposed, that's just a lesson.
0: And for the first time, there's also usually someone chooses to play the ambitious uh, and or weaselly political character. In this case, she wasn't uh, vying for power, a a player decided to be the uh, princess. She already had a certain amount of power in the clan and thus establishing that in this uh, version of Hillfolk there are princesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And she decided that she wanted a lot of conquest and subjugation and so forth. That'll happen. Yes, so that player did a really great job. Zenobia
1: avant Lettre.
0: Yes, of uh, escalating things as well. I also ran a Feng Shui game, so this is my first time running Feng Shui 2 for anyone outside of my own playtest group. So that was a a coup for some uh, French gamers, and confirmed uh, we had a great time, and the final battle was uh, everything you could ask for when running a game at a convention of something that you are still working on and haven't published yet. The uh, three out of the four characters were on the brink of death as they finally put down Thrill Kill Mandrill, the cyborg ape from the future who had arrived in contemporary Hong Kong to blow things up uh and uh that was really delightful a g- great chance to test the new uh, death and dying rules and uh
1: <laughs> always good when you get a chance to test the death and dying rules
0: right and uh and you know uh there was a sad montage as the uh, redeemed assassin died uh, spattered in, in blood at the end of the, of the battle, and uh, the montage played of all the sentimental moments of his time together with the rest of the players. Blaring so Kanto
1: uh, pop over the back as he tried to reach for his glass of tequila. Exactly.
0: So it was uh, just about the perfect uh, Feng Shui to run. I confirmed that the big bruiser character, who has never worked... Uh, in feng shui one works really uh, well in feng shui two so uh, a fine time was held and in addition to that we did the usual panels of uh, you know a straight q a panel and i sat in on the glorantha panel that uh, jeff richard of moon design was giving i got an interview with him which hopefully we have enough sound quality to drop into an upcoming episode and uh, there was also the gm troubleshooting panel which uh, as you know uh, any other panel about role-playing turns into a jamming, troubleshooting panel halfway through, so I prefer it to start all the way through, and the usual bunch of Robin Law's jamming advice was uh, dispensed.
1: Excellent. Before we get to the beautiful countryside and the part where um, uh, I will hunt you down in the spirit world, um, the gamers at this event, are is it fair to say that they are the sort of alpha-alpha French gamers, that these are the guys who go back to their... Uh, their own game groups and their own game stores, and they are really the the guys that you want to get uh, something in front of if you are a game designer, uh, especially an American game designer, given that France has a vibrant and exciting game design scene on its own?
0: Yes, I think there's a segment of people who fall into that category, and also like Tentacles before it, there is also a heavy-duty chunk of the Chaosium diaspora community. Right. So yeah. uh, there are Glorantha fans. There was a Glorantha freeform. There are people there who are really excited to talk Cthulhu. And so, uh, and there's obviously a certain amount of overlap with that and what uh, you and I do with Pelgrane because uh, Pelgrane is a licensee of Call of Cthulhu and uh, mm-hmm. we do Gumshoe. And that is sort of follows in the tradition of Chaosium Adventures where the adventures are really solid and you actually you know, people buy the adventures, So it was a a bit of the, the alpha gamer and a bit of the continuance of this particular community of the, you know, the Chaosium brand has always been associated sort of with the uh, literary side of gaming and the sort of uh, heavy duty collector side. So it's a, a bit of A and a bit
1: of B. Great. That sounds fantastic. Now, did you get to play in anything or were you just running? Did you get to show up and be in someone's, you know, a heartwarming game of uh, Keen, or uh, or uh, the original In Nominee, or something else from the French design scene that I don't know because it's been three years.
0: Um, that would have entailed forcing people to, to GM in English. That's true. So uh, w- what I did instead was I uh, dropped in to sort of play some guest characters slash co-GM uh, for a couple of HeroQuest games sessions that jeff richard was running and that was another really great thing about this was getting back in touch with how many people are still really digging HeroQuest because it's a design that i am not currently working on anything for so it sort of recedes in my uh, consciousness compared to the stuff that i'm doing for palgrain and so it was a real delight to see that uh, people really enjoy that rule system and there are still people being turned on to that rule system particularly by the uh fervent proselytizing of one Jeff Richard.
1: Yes, well, uh, as well he should, because it's a fine and dandy system that I had a great deal of fun with, or I guess with the sort of point nine incarnation of. But, anyway, now that we've sort of put the convention to bed, unless there's new exciting convention stories, tell us all about uh, Avignon and X and Wherever else you went, it may, perhaps you went down to the Camargue and touched the first cattle ever in the world. I don't know what you did. You you, you were in Provence, for gosh sakes. I, I didn't
0: do a lot of cattle touching. So the uh, after the convention was done, and... Oh, wait a minute. I'm not yet through talking about the convention because uh-huh. there's a food hut segment. So well,
1: duh. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't know if the food hut was primarily outside the convention, barring Charlie's, of course, masterful barbecuing
0: now normally as north americans we would expect precisely that, that yes the food at a convention would be convention food mm-hmm. um or you know if your convention is at a british university that your food would be horrible cafeteria food yes but this is a convention in France, so therefore there's an entire team of people uh, led by uh, this uh, great woman who uh, owns a farm and there's a team who just go in order to cook for everybody else. Wow. And they invade the kitchen of this facility and take it over and this is their domain and they turn out incredible food. (laughs) Um, Go figure. uh, One of the meals was like, for example, a period medieval meal with medieval style flatbread. And uh, during the day, uh, lunch will appear and there's uh, all these fabulous uh, sandwiches and so that accounted for uh, some of the many, many baguettes that I consumed while there. So you'd be sitting there uh, eating away and out would come the cheese course and out would come the salad. And uh, it's the first time that I've attended a convention where it was not only necessary but desirable on the next night after teardown the convention organizers will still very happily eating the food prepared at the convention. Wow. So take that rest of world.
1: Well, uh, when France and cooking have been discussed, take that rest of world has been sort of a thing to be assumed. Yes. Uh, now, was there a, a beautiful culinary experience outside the convention that you want to share with us? You had some magnificent food elsewhere out in, uh, as as I continuously emphasize, driving the blade even deeper into my own flesh. Provence.
0: Yes. Um and uh there was a lot of incredible food and also unusually for a convention trip, unless you count the continental breakfast in the hotel I was staying at during the convention, I went to a restaurant once when I was there because uh my delightful hosts, uh Phil and Camille, who are also game creators, are also both great cooks. Uh ah, and uh wonderful. so in a way, I can't really, you know, talk too much <laughs> yes. about the food because it's an even narrower thing. If if you go to Provence, yeah. get invited to Phil Eribeau and Camille Giroux's house and they, uh, and then they'll cook, you know, an amazing equivalent of shepherd's pie, which is a cheese and a layer of, uh, mashed potato and then delicious duck. Uh, A number of ducks were harmed in the making of our meals. Bad things happen to ducks, and we're the beneficiary of that. Well,
1: if they didn't want people to harm them, they shouldn't be so tasty. That's what I've always said about ducks.
0: It is exactly their fault. Um, And the one meal that I actually uh, did have was in a heritage uh, village on the uh, way north into uh, Rhone wine country, and Mm -hmm. we had dobe for lunch, and that is a a famous Provençal meal in which you uh, take the not-so-great cuts of stewing beef and turn them into something incredibly profound by uh, slow-cooking them for eight hours in uh, red wine and herbs and garlic. And, garlic. and the, yes. uh, the sides uh, that went with that were uh, also incredible. And uh,
1: there was also a lot of wine. I, 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 uh, I'm shocked to hear it. Yes. You, you don't really think of wine when you think of France. You think France is more of a gin country.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, historically speaking the first day trip was to uh aix-en-provence which was phil's hangout from his uh, student days and uh, you can tell that it's a university town as well as a, a beautiful sort of uh shopping town where uh in this case a light sprinkling of tourists wandered because this was early in the year and there's lots of game stores there's a, a beautiful comic book uh, slash game store where i got my uh photo taken with the store staff and duly Facebooked and we passed a couple of other comic shops and there was a lonely games workshop off in the distance. And uh, so we went to a 12th century cathedral while we were there. And then the next day I went to Avignon to see the Palace of the Popes because uh, those of you who know your papal history know that there were a period where Uh, Popes or anti-popes, depending on uh, how you want to characterize them, were located in Avignon, France, instead of in Rome. And this was the hastily constructed yet extremely majestic and very political, very temporal palace that proclaimed the power and legitimacy of these uh, French-located
1: popes. Right. And um uh, in what I think is one of the great bits of uh chutzpah in history, after the popes got back to Rome, they still claimed Avignon as papal territory, even though they were no longer French puppets. It's as if, you know, Poland was still claiming some piece of the Lubianka as its territory because all of its national leaders had been held there. So that's pretty badass for the papacy. But of course, it all got undone by the French Revolution, as things do. Do we have any other great things that you saw in France as I... Uh, fail at a series of self-control rolls to climb down the cord of the of the Skype microphone and um, uh, strain the last little drops of Coats de Bone out of you.
0: Uh, does that mean you don't want to hear about the trip to Wine Country? I
1: do want to hear about the trip to Wine Country so okay, very much. So
0: it just so happens that uh, I, I did go so far as to look at a map of wine regions before I left and realized <laughs> that my favorite wine region, the, the Côte de Bone region, was a hop, skip and a jump away from where we were. So we uh, hopped in Phil's car and went north. And we had this sort of uh, classic experience where we kind of, uh, so you drive up there and there's vines and wineries everywhere and they're actually pretty small, most of them. And uh, the, you know those are the really great ones that do this sort of limited small mm-hmm. amounts of wine. And, and uh, because their geographical space in which they're growing grapes is very specific. That's why their wines are very specific because, yes, yeah. you know, even being on a flat instead of a hillside or getting a lot of sun or not, will make a big or difference. The west in
1: side it. instead of the east side or whatever it is.
0: Exactly. So there's one that we sort of went to when we were not quite where we thought we were. And uh, that was the Legier, uh domain. And those, uh, the wines we tasted there were incredible. And I got a, uh, very, uh, sweet, uh, muscat aperitif style, Mm. uh, to take home. And then we, uh, went to another place and then we started to get sort of the, the kind of the bummer side of the experience because the, um, Phil really wanted to, uh, wangle me a tour, uh, just sort of on an improvised basis. Well, uh, it turns out that the wine tasting lady at the next place was like, oh no, no, you're not going to get a tour here. Now in other regions, apparently it is relatively easy to say, hey, yeah. can you take us backstage? But she was, say, oh, no, 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 not here. It's no, easy to because do that in Napa, you, for example. You, you would need special shoes. <laughs> and everyone is worried about an industrial espionage. So there's, no, that's just not, give up, that's not going to happen. Um, and we tried her wines and They were okay. Then we went to... uh, The next place we went to in Rasteau was uh, more of a big commercial space where uh, the bigger wineries had their stuff. And the lady there was like even more... Not only uh, the vibe we are getting from her was that not only was it impossible, but that we were jerks for even asking. Right, yeah. So uh, after a quick trip to the tourist bureau we got a line on the one place that maybe would take us backstage and so then uh we got there and it was closed ah. we went to the however there was one right next door the Domaine de Nip. so we head on into the little retail slash tasting area and there's nobody there and uh but in comes uh this gentleman who's obviously been uh working hard out in the fields he's uh, uh he's uh sweaty and if you were going to cast someone in a movie to play the role of the uh, magical proprietor of a fabulous winery, you would cast this man. He was, had a florid face. He had the big Gerard de nose. Mm-hmm. He had this big, upswept, white crop of uh, Jack Nance hair. And he also uh, clearly was uninterested in taking us on a backstage tour until we started tasting the wines and Phil and I passed the test. And I don't see how anyone could fail to pass the test because... These were incredible wines, and each one he would... Uh, and so, partway through, uh, Phil had his case that he was paying for, and uh, the gentleman was trying to do the point of sale, and was a little befuddled by it. And so, while he was waiting for the purchase to go through, he well, would you like to try the white? <laughs> would
1: we? We would. Yes, and- yeah, I, I suppose we we could we could bring ourselves around to that if we if we must.
0: Yes, yeah, so and I I'm like Cote de bread red, but I've and I've had a variety of whites, most of which didn't seem like anything to me. Well, this one was really something; it was really amazing. And then, well, how would you like to try the apéritif? Oh my god! Oh, and uh, and then oh, and the rosé. Would you like to try the rosé? Yes, yes. I guess we could because the purchase order isn't going through. So anyway, enough quiet, suppressed, uh, but clearly sincere enthusiasm was expressed that we did in fact uh, get our tour. And we got to go uh, down into the basement and see where uh, everything is done. And we saw the real secret of why they don't want uh, you to go on wine tours, which is that it's not that big a thing, really. No, it's it expensive. isn't.
1: It's, I mean, it's it's nice. It's it's fun to to stand there surrounded by wine, and if you're planning to summon Dionysus, it's an excellent starting point. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's not like you know you're being surrounded by flashing-eyed wenches who were stomping on grapes or whatever you might imagine. Yeah, it's educational, but it's still farm equipment. Yes, right, it is.
0: But nonetheless, uh, we took that as evidence that we had uh, prevailed and uh, Phil uh, wound up coming home with a whole bunch of bottles of wine from there. And I, of course, could only take one because uh, Canadian import uh, rules uh, induce a rigmarole once you go beyond two bottles of wine in your suitcase. Oh, man. And, of course, this particular uh, winery does not export to Ontario due to... Nonsense. ...our liquor monopoly, which is uh, often something we'll argue in favor of. for, but uh, the fact that it will be difficult for me to ever get another bottle from the Domaine de Nipsa does induce a pang in that, which may come close to the pangs that you are currently feeling, Ken.
1: Well, as long as you're uh, feeling even the shadiest and most illusory of sympathetic pangs, I think that is a adequate note of misty-eyed loss to go out on for a European travel advisory. So, while the director pans ever so slowly across the mist-covered fields of Provence...
0: Mm, sm- smell the herbs in the arcane. Mm, smell them.
1: Just a touch of marjoram. I smell the marjoram. <laughs> and we move into the next hot... This episode is also brought to you by World of Aetaltus: the Temple of Modrin.
0: An exciting new Pathfinder-compatible adventure that introduces players to the Aetaltus setting.
1: Kickstarting now! It's low prep
0: and ready to play, complete with characters.
1: World of Aetaltus, a new fantasy setting, embraces and reinvigorates the familiar elements of fantasy games and fiction.
0: Project creator Mark Tassin doesn't want you to trust in the awesomeness of a project he will one day
1: complete... Far from it. Backers at any level score an immediate download of the full text, so you can see for yourself if it floats your Pathfinder-compatible boat.
0: Temple of Modrin serves as
1: a mere first nibble of this exciting new world. Stretch goals bring it further to life with stories by Luminary authors Larry Correa, David Farland, Matt Forbeck, Ed Greenwood, Dave Gross, John Helfers, Stephen S. Long, Mel Odom, Gene Rabe, Lucy A. Snyder, Michael A. Stackpole, and Elizabeth Vaughn, with a cover by fantasy illustration icon, Larry Elmore. Two additional Pathfinder-compatible
0: site books, the Greenbrier Tavern and the Town of Thornwall, are already in production.
1: You know the Kickstarter drill, Ken and Robin listeners. The project and its tantalizing stretch goals only happen with your support.
0: Strap on your crowdfunding swords, gather up your material components, and toss some gold coins at the creation of this fantastic new world.
1: Before it's tragically too late.
0: It's time once again for Ask Ken and Robin. And this week on Ask Ken and Robin, Chris Shoreb asks, When I want to create an alternate history setting that feels plausible to my players, where do I start? Ken, you are the uh, maestro of the alternate history setting. Where do you start?
1: When I am creating an alternate history setting now, I mean, there, there's two reasons to create an alternate history setting. If I'm doing it for consumption, if I'm doing it even for my player group, I start at the end. I start where I want to get. If I want a world where the Germans won World War I, I start with that. I don't start trying to figure out what happens in 1916 uh, to make Verdun go wrong or whatever. I start with, you know, what do I want the world to look like? And then I sink a foundation underneath the things that I suspect will be the dodgiest. So
0: Right. So it's not an exercise in extrapolation. It's an exercise in justification.
1: Exactly. Justification, interpolation, and then the sort of creative application of facts and tendencies that will bolster the thing long enough to let a game be played there or to let a uh, supplement be uh, released with that as its as its sort of uh, departure point. The reason you do that is because if you start the other direction, if you start thinking about, okay, what are the logistical concerns that I need for Napoleon to win in Russia, you've, you're already trapping yourself in a box where at the end you're like well i really think the game would be better if napoleon owned the crimea but i guess he can't own it if it's li- if it's uh, the way that i've extrapolated it so i have to accept that the game is worse as an experience to make it feel more real and the you know i'm here to tell you that feeling real is less interesting to players than feeling fun now there are people uh like me and people uh, especially like me a few years ago who made it very hard to tell the difference between feeling real and feeling fun and I suspect that uh, most people are not me, which is probably for the best in the long run. But if you are looking to deal with people like me, then you need to look at the thing. And If your big problem is, okay, how do I get Bonapartist forces in Crimea in the 20th century? That's what you really have to to bolster and, and, and build up under. You have to provide a background in the storyline. Now, the, the great advantage is that if you're doing it for a role-playing game, Nine times out of ten, there is some aspect of magic or fantasy or monsters or something that is happening in your role-playing game that is different from our world and where you really need some uh, some foundationing, you can go back and put something magical there. So the reason that the King of Greece died suddenly and Greece joined the Central Powers in 1914, or rather, actually, the King of Greece was pro-Central Powers, the reason that uh, the King of Greece stayed alive and uh, stayed on the throne and Greece joined the Central Powers in 1916 was that, you know, evil Kaiserine magicians were at work, or whatever it is in your in your setting that causes historical change, caused a historical change. And that can actually drive the pedant player when he's like, I, I just don't understand how the Spanish got nuclear power 14 years after the Armada. That just doesn't make sense to me.
0: Right, because the the fear, I think, is that, you will have a Ken height as, as a player.
1: Yeah, God forbid.
0: Um, and uh, there are two things to that, one of which it, the, the suggestion you just gave. The other thing is that you don't need to explain the alternateness of the setting to players playing characters in a role-playing game because their characters don't know our timeline. You can just say, well, it's just like this. And you need to have a reasonably good foundation of how it gets from your endpoint backwards to all the justifications and where the branch point is and so forth. But the player who wants to be hypercritical about your extrapolations doesn't actually have a vehicle to do that because their character has no idea about this alternate timeline. And so unless the adventures consist of them going and trying to figure out why they're an alternate timeline, and I can't imagine why you would do that because it would be <laughs> spectacularly dull, um, you've got an out. You can just say, well, you know, your, your character doesn't know about such and such. He knows about this. This is the history he knows.
1: Yeah. One trick that I do for that is uh, to do the, the sort of the snooty um, historical documentary voice. And so the, the, the trick is to start with, in retrospect, it was inevitable that... You know, in retrospect, it was an inevitable that Napoleon should triumph over the European coalition. And then you just sort of list off all the reasons that he might have triumphed over the the European coalition. In, 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 retrospect, in retrospect, it was inevitable that Persia should destroy Greece forever. And you list off all the reasons why that should happen. And many of those reasons are reasons you can then reinforce in the game design, or you can reinforce when you're presenting the setting to the Ken Height player, so that they don't then out of game make a giant pain of themselves. And in-game, they can say, yeah, all right, I I buy that long enough to go fight pirates or whatever the game is actually about.
0: And in our particular timeline, there's lots of things that are mysteries, you know, that that scholars still debate You know, what what were the real causes of the Civil War or, you know, what what really brought this about? We know what happened. But if you want to go beyond that into why that happened, there's always huge room for debate. So, uh, you know, I would say in order to make your alternate history plausible, make sure that the players do not have an unrealistically large and certain amount of information about it, that it should be uh, just as fuzzy and vexing and full of questions as our history is.
1: Yeah, don't provide a 20-page a handout. Um, give them the, you know, here's what you know. Right now, the Empire of Lithuania, Poland, is on the march aggressively, sending its golem armies after the Japanese samurai holdings in Kazakhstan or whatever. And it's like, okay, that was pretty awesome. Golem versus samurai on the plains of Russia. This is phenomenal. How did the Japanese get to Kazakhstan? You know, you're not really sure. They're Japanese. They're weird. Who knows? And then you can open up a little bit more of that door each time if you want. Again, I, when I was running these games back in grad school, I was running them for history students at the University of Chicago, so building out the insane backstory was part of our fun, but that's a different hobby, really. That's that's like painting miniatures versus wargaming. It, it's it's two allied but separate hobbies. And, and actually, that sort of brings me around to a question. Robin, you are historically knowledgeable, but not annoying. Um, as a player, <laughs> What are the things that, that make you, that, that you are concerned with in terms of plausibility? If you're there fighting samurai in Kazakhstan, do you have a niggling question as to what on earth the Japanese are doing in Kazakhstan, or do you just say, well, they're samurai, they got to go down?
0: Um, no, I'm not going to do that at all, because unless it pertains to the action of the story, uh, that plausibility of your alternate history is actually pretty low down on the list of things that make a world come alive Mm -hmm. that if you want to make it feel real describe the flavor of the world describe what the uh, air smells like describe uh, what the temperature is describe uh, create people who are uh, vivid and real and uh, I would say the real temptation that will cause everybody in the group who isn't the resident history scholar to tune out is a lot of unnecessary exposition. Mm -hmm. So if you do want to, you know, deliver little reward pellets to the one guy who really cares about the ins and outs of your historical background, drop in a little thing every episode. Think to yourself, okay, this is the episode in which I'm going to uh, provide a little clue that explains why the prime minister of Greece went the other way. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing where I'm, okay, this time I'm going to give this little hint as to why there are samurai in Kazakhstan. And so dole that out with the same parsimoniousness, uh, the same economy as I guess, a more economical term, uh, that you would any other amount of exposition that doesn't directly
1: relate to the story at hand. Right, no more than you'd go into the endless list of, you know, dwarven kings or something in a pure fantasy world
0: right you you might say you know oh you go to a history lecture uh, you know that if you really have a player who really wants to know a lot of the detail the way i always do that is i turn that around so that it's not me giving out information but it's okay you have a source of information you go to a history lecture you hear a bunch of stuff about history lecture what do you want to know so that i will then answer the specific questions that i'm given and therefore ground the players to the extent that they want to be grounded, but it's not a giant information dump where mm-hmm. as she suggested you read the 20 pages of, of background detail. So really, I think what you're looking for is to create the feeling that you have worked everything out, which is more important than you're actually having worked everything out, and certainly very much more important than giving that to everybody up
1: front. Now, that said, um, obviously, the audience for a game is different from the audience for a novel, and alternate history readers are much more concerned with plausibility as, as sort of a quality of the, of, the, of the subgenre. And the overlap between alternate history readers and alternate history game players is strong enough that if you can create a fun setting in either a plausible or an implausible way, You should aim to create it in a more plausible way, and the place to start with those kinds of things is to look at, you know, A, to read a lot of history, and B, to read as much alternate history that is well-regarded as you can to sort of get a sense for how to do it. I mean, it's sort of like explaining, even more than explaining GMing, I think explaining alternate history is like explaining jazz. It's You just have to play a lot of notes, and then suddenly you're playing jazz. And to an degree, you have to read a lot of history, and then suddenly you're building alternate history. And the point at which you start doing it is an organic point to each reader or each student. And so I can't really say that this will be the point at which you know that it is plausible, but I will say that if you have read enough history that what you construct does not immediately strike your own alarm bells, you can feel confident enough to put it in front of your other player and say, if your player went to a history lecture in this world, what would be the three things they would want to know? Maybe and if you're worried about one player having buy-in problems or suspension of disbelief problems, you can go to them. If you're, if it's your whole group, if you are actually running for history majors at the university of Chicago, in which case, you know, drop me an email, I'll come by. Um, then you will probably want to talk it over at the same time you're building characters is when I like to do. Is, is when I like to throw things in about the background that are going to uh, surprise and alarm the players and say, by the way, you guys do know that this is, you know, Empire of Japan versus Poland-Lithuania, right? You 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 guys got that. And oh, okay, yeah, all right, fine. And, and, most and if I was players... running
0: for a bunch of uh, fellow history majors, uh, and obviously in this scenario, I'm a history major, um, <laughs> that I would uh, create the... I, I would have a, an opening session where you just all work collaboratively together, creating the alternate timeline, you know, in sort of a loosey-goosey version of uh, Macroscope, microscope. is it? That, yeah. where you, microscope? microscope. Yeah. Um, and that, A, will build you more buy-in because everybody uh, agrees that it's credible to the extent that it can be credible, and if they're all alternate history junkies, they've all helped to uh, get you there, and then they all know the background as players, if not as characters, and then having done that, that, you know, gets all of the other sort of expositional problems we were talking about earlier out of the way and then you can get down to playing in that world and everybody feels a sense of ownership over it and if anyone thinks it's implausible you've moved the blame around
1: yes it's like well that's because carl carl's the guy who wanted all the nuclear powered zeppelins not me
0: so i think we've uh, adequately answered that question and it's uh, time to uh, move on to our next hut
1: thanks carl (laughs)
0: The alien black dog looking at us from the window and the strangely saucer-shaped structure that we are standing in tell us that we have once more entered the theremin-scored precincts of the fuzzy and mysterious Elliptony Hut. And this week, we're responding to yet another listener request. That's two, count them, two in one episode. Uh, Alan Scott uh, wants to know about the Lemurians of Mount Shasta. And before we locate some... Specific Lemurians at Mount Shasta, Ken, perhaps you could back up a step. We've talked about them before, but just uh, so that people don't have to bop over to another podcast and back to this one. What are Lemurians in general? Where do they first enter our consciousness in the world of mythology?
1: Lemuria, per se, actually began in the world of science. The world, well, not, you know, science as we understand science, but real science. Science as it was then. As it was then. Biologists wanted to know why there were lemurs in Madagascar and in India but not on the continents in between, right? There were no lemurs in Arabia. There were no lemurs any of the places that they would have gone if they'd walked from Africa to India. And so they speculated that there might have been a sunken land in the Indian Ocean where the lemurs had dwelt before being trapped by its drowning. And they called that hypothetical continent, I shouldn't say imaginary because it was a scientist making it up out of no evidence, (laughs) that hypothetical continent Lemuria. And the name of that was so exciting and fun that it caught uh, Madame Blavatsky's gimlet eye, as things will. And so she wrote Lemuria into Theosophy, and instead of leaving it in the Indian Ocean necessarily, it sort of got elighted and collated with Mu, which was the big, imaginary, purely imaginary continent in the Pacific Ocean that was made up basically for balance with Atlantis. I think it was basically a, a market decision by the guy who made it up. Lemuria sort of got Applied to the lost continent in the Pacific to Mu, and that is sort of how it came down into the later Theosophic movement. Is that uh, Lemuria could be used, or the Lemurians, the imaginary astral race that Madame Blavatsky actually they weren't astral; they were the first purely physical of the of the imaginary races. And so they were uh, they were very mad about that. They would you know stonk around and, and and shout psychically at each other and do things. But there was after they evolved above their muddy beginnings. They evolved the sort of uh, magical high society that people evolve in Theosophy, and specifically, for some reason, it became decided that the Lemurians used a lot of bells and crystals and acoustical power, uh, and that and that sort of their shtick was that they were sort of musical and and magical. And I'm not sure if that was someone trying to sort of apply a Pythagorean, you know, Age of the Arts type uh, approach, which would have been kind of nice, or if it was just that that's how the the cosmic dice came down when. H. Spencer Lewis was making up the Lemurians for American audiences back in the uh, teens and twenties.
0: Right, because you you need a cool image to suggest that this is a uh, higher civilization that has fallen, and obviously there is a certain amount of uh, Atlantis getting tracked into the Lemurian uh, mythology as well, and so there's uh, you know, that they're an alternate Atlantis and the mythology is similar, and that they're, you know, if they sank on an island they must have been a super advanced race uh, because why would just you know, a bunch of lemurs sink on an island, that would be no no good. So, uh, so these are our Lemurians and, uh, where is Mount Shasta and why do people think there might be Lemurians associated with it?
1: Mount Shasta is possibly the best behaved volcano that you could ever want to have in your country. It's in California, just a little bit South of the Oregon border. It's where the Sierra Madres and the Cascades meet. It's 14,000 feet tall. Um, the, uh, Uh, Russian Chastal, or the French Chaste, is probably where it gets the name Shasta. The uh, Winton Indians, who got named the Shasta Indians, because obviously they were near Mount Shasta and didn't they know any better, um, they called it Wairika, which meant that mountain up there. And so that was kind of unfun compared to Shasta, which is a much cooler name all the way around. Well,
0: uh, I think probably most peoples who live next to a particular mountain call it the mountain.
1: Yes, and... uh... This one was the mountain to the north because I lived near a lot of mountains, but it was pretty much no more fun than that. And so uh, Mount Shasta, sort of, it's, it's a very pretty mountain and it's handy to uh, people who are doing hiking once you get uh, enough cars going around, which is probably why people start making up exciting things about Mount Shasta in the 1890s, which is when, as it turns out, they did. There was a guy named Frederick Spencer Oliver, um, who was writing a channeled novel as you do. Um, he, he had this vision in 1884 and he got a vision of Phylos of Tibet. Phylos being a well-known Tibetan name.
0: And if a channel novel is good, yeah. uh, you were smart to channel it. And yes. if it has weak points, well, you had to transcribe the thing and it's, uh, it's, it's the fault of the entity. That's,
1: that's really on Phylos. It's not my fault that Phylos yeah. can't write meaningful characters. But Phylos, it turned out, was writing a novel about his past life as a 49er named Pearson, who um, was initiated into the secrets of Mount Shasta by a Chinese uh, laborer uh, named Quang, and Quang led Pearson, who, remember, is going to get reincarnated as a guy in Tibet and a guy in California. This is fun right now, that Frederick Spencer Oliver is like, gosh, I wonder what the past life of this Tibetan llama could be. It could be anything. Oh, I know. He's a guy who lived up the road from me. Um,
0: <laughs> well, that's ju- just weird enough that it's, it's you know, an element
1: of plausibility. Yeah, that, that it's explains a, a why a mundane
0: it's... dimension to an otherwise wild uh, idea.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so Frederick Spencer Oliver eventually um, published uh, his uh, vision as a novel or as a sort of quasi-novel-y thing in which he mentioned Quang having revealed to him or rather to Pearson, that there was a Lemurian sacred city inside uh, Mount Shasta. And that sort of set the cat amongst the magical pigeons. There was an astronomer who wrote a book about, or or rather a uh, sort of a a occult review of Oliver's book. Uh, His name was Edgar Lucian Larkin, and he was in his observatory looking through his telescope, and he saw the golden dome of the Lemurian cities on on the slopes of Mount Shasta which is quite a trick because his telescope was in Los Angeles. And there you go. That's quite a job of work, even for an occult astronomer.
0: I I would think the the only way is a remote sensing uh, telescope.
1: I would would think so. And then there's another guy who wrote, uh, named Selvius, who wrote a a sort of, you know, exposé, breaking down the whole Lemurian influence thing called Descendants of Lemuria in a magazine, which was no doubt a hoot, called Mystic Triangle. And that was a big deal. And then the big... Moment that blows it up forever is that the Theosophical Association of America, or the Rosicrucian Association, I forget which one, publishes Lemuria, Lost Continent of the Pacific by a guy named Wislar Spenley Servey, C-E-R-V-E, which is a ill-concealed anagram for Harvey Spencer Lewis, which was the name of the head of the American Rosicrucians.
0: Let me guess, his password is 1234. His
1: password is guest, I think, actually, because he's open to, uh, to outside influence. Lemuria lost continent of the Pacific was the big deal, and that's where that sort of you know hit the big time because the Rosicrucians, as opposed to the Mystic Triangle, or a dweller on two planets, or the Dividing of the Way by Frederick Spencer Oliver, or crazy astronomers, it had a it had a national uh, distribution. and And the other big thing that happens right about this time is that Guy Ballard, who was the head of the I Am cult, um, who went up to Mount Shasta. Uh, according to him in 1930, which would have been before Lewis's book came out, but I don't know when he told the story first, but he went up to Mount Shasta and met a very, very Nordic uh, Count de Saint Germain, who told him all about how the importance of psychic cleansing uh, was if you wanted to get communism and foreigners and labor unions out of uh, the Great White Brotherhood. So Ballard was sort of... Provi- he w- he I, You could sort of see him in the distance as the Himmler to uh, William Dudley Pelley's Hitler in terms of the American fascist uh, movement. The silver shirts were huge into the IM movement, and they sort of fed off of each other in much the same way that the Nazi party and the Volkish movement fed off of each other, except that since they were doing it in a functioning democracy, nothing happened until the federal government came in in 1940 and prosecuted everyone for mail fraud.
0: And if you go to the Ken and Robin site and you uh, type in uh, Pelly or Volkish, you'll find our previous segments on those two, uh, that dude and that movement.
1: So that is the sort of, you know, 911 on how we know now that Mount Shasta is full of Lemurians is because it basically began as someone's channeled communication, was picked up by the Rosicrucians, and then by the Am movement, which sort of made a big deal out of it up until they got broken in half by the FBI.
0: So we've uh, talked a lot about the idea evolution of there being Lemurians on Mount Shasta, but uh, who are the Lemurians? What do they want from us?
1: Well, the Lemurians are our friends. Everyone agrees on that. Your fascists agree. Your channeled Tibetans agree. Even Commander X, the guy who's blown the lid off the American government's secret uh, UFO plans for low these many years, he agrees that uh, Mount Shasta is in the hands of good aliens, not evil aliens, or Lemurians who are good as opposed to Atlanteans or someone else who are bad. So we're in good hands. They, are, they, they just want to sort of bring peace and love and probably stop nuclear war now and maybe they want to stop global warming i don't know i don't know if the people have been meeting a lot of lemurians now i think it seems a little quaint maybe to people who are having uh, uh, psychotic episodes and personality breaks and so therefore maybe they're seeing fewer lemurians which would be a shame but uh the lemurians uh, made a deal with uh, president cleveland back in 1886 according to i think commander x someone said that anyway and i don't know that i need to i don't I don't need to source this.
0: You, you don't need to footnote the crazy.
1: Right. There's, uh, Well, actually, I kind of do. But in this particular case, I'm pretty sure it was Commander X. The, um, uh, there have been UFOs over Mount Shasta, so that's probably where they're flying around. You know, they their ufo base. The Lemurians have flying saucers because their their acoustic power lets them uh, float things. Because if you remember UFOs, they make those great theremin noises.
0: Right. And so when we go up to Mount Shasta and, and don't happen to run into Lemurians that day, it's clearly that they have set their harmonic frequencies to uh, invisibility right. or not being able to be noticed. Yeah, if you
1: remember from the Flash comics, Gorilla Grodd's Gorilla, Gorilla City, well, actually, it was not Gorilla Grodd. He was a rebel against Gorilla... It was... Um, uh, um, what was his name? Sokolore or something, right? The well, good it's Gorilla.
0: city in the sense that Chicago is, is your city.
1: Right, yeah. It's, it's Gorilla Grodd. Exactly the same sense. But uh, Gorilla City was kept <laughs> behind a vibratory barrier so that no one except the Flash could see it. I suspect a similar technology is at use... Is it use on Mount Shasta by the Lemurians, that they have a vibratory barrier there, keeping their golden domes from anyone who is not a psychic astronomer or the Flash. So
0: uh, quickly, adventure seeds that we can uh, wring from this is the Lemurians, since everybody agrees they're good guys, are, I guess, sort of more patron characters. Uh, They might uh, give you exposition, or they might send you on a mission. So you might uh, get notified uh, by uh, Lemurians that they need help, and then you have to go to Mount Shasta and meet them. Or I suppose you could... You know, they could meet you at a coffee shop or whatever, and they could uh, have an astral projected harmonic uh, shroud version of themselves who could uh, tell you to go and...
1: Uh, tell you to help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only yes. help. Yes.
0: Um, what else can we uh, get out of the the uh, the Lemurians either are uh, friends of Earth and are monitoring it for supernatural threats and can pop in every so often to point the characters in the right direction. And, of course, if they don't have all the information you need, that's your job, investigators, to go and find it out.
1: I think the Lemurians would add a lot to a uh, an Old West game, right? You could have them, you know, sort of as these figures in white that are sort of appearing up in the mountains. And, you, you know, they, they if you're based out of uh, San Francisco, like uh, Paladin in Have Gun, Will Travel... Uh, you can, you know, be going around and sure enough, there's a guy in white who comes down off Mount Shasta and he's like, well, if you're concerned about that missing idol, I think I know where it might be. And eventually you sort of piece together the fact that there's these Lemurians up on Mount Shasta and whether or not they're you know, really good or in sort of, you know, the way of, we'll fix everything that's wrong with your country. Don't you worry about us type not so much good way. I think they'd be good cowboys. You could do a thing where they have gateways from Mount Shasta to the other magic mountains in the world, like uh, Mount Sinai and Mount Olympus and uh, Taishan in China and uh, Mount Fuji and whatnot. And you, then you can be sent on on expeditions. Yeti probably are fighting the Lemurians. Uh, that seems the way that they would do things. So you can get yourself caught up in a Yeti versus Lemurian war, regardless of what you're on, practically.
0: And uh, you could always, uh, in the way of modern things, the way that you can do to... Uh, the Lemurians of Mount Shasta, what Zack Snyder did to Krypton and retro fit them to suddenly be weird and creepy. Or, you know, you can have the evil Lemurians who stage a coup and take over and then you uh, have a more active conflict that brings the Lemurians and uh, Lemuria into it more than if they are just sort of your uh, psychopomp characters who uh, get you into the adventure and point you in the right direction when you need it.
1: Or there could be a, a renegade Lemurian, just like Gorilla Grodd, who's been kicked out of uh, Mount Shasta because he has negative energies and uses acoustic powers for evil. And he could be running around causing trouble and you, the His player characters... His name
0: might be Lemur Lou.
1: Yeah, Lemur Lod or something. Solovar, by the way, the head of Gorilla City. I knew that I would remember it because... It's entirely useless. And well, there's a
0: whole bunch of people taking their hands away from the typing over the comment field, even as you speak. That's that's
1: full service you get here at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.
0: Uh, well, uh, now that we've gotten on to the uh, subject of who rules guerrilla cities, I think we have well covered this uh, question about the Laprians of Mount Shasta. And we have one more simian like figure to discuss in Looming, this week's podcast. As it were, in the Looming. The distance. Yes.
1: The sound of sea spray crashing against the bow of the Pequod, uh, Robin's club foot stomping across the deck, and the sound of harpoon chains being rattled back into their hawsers tell us that once more we have entered that particularly Melvillian segment of the politics hut, where Robin once more spots his nemesis, perhaps this time crippled for good, and going down to the bottom of the sea. But we've said that before, and once more, Herman Melville has proven us wrong. Robin, what's the news with your particular Moby Ford? What's going on with Canada's favorite mayor?
0: So listeners who saw a particularly monumental bit of Rob Ford news a while ago uh, will note that it's taken us a bit to get to this, and that's because uh, in order to cover my aforementioned travels we've been Stacking up episodes and to have a longer lead time than usual. So this is my first chance to talk about Rob Ford's trip to rehab Um, so to (laughs) Recap
1: previously
0: the uh, Toronto Merrill election is in full swing Uh, Ford up until this was in third place with a what on the surface was a a vexing looking 27% of uh, the poll results and people were wondering how this uh, admitted crack smoker, and walking train wreck of a man could command (laughs) uh, those numbers in the polls. Well, his numbers in the polls went down as of April 30th when a triple whammy uh, landed upon him. Each of Toronto's three major newspapers had a big reveal about Rob Ford. And uh, those of you who know Toronto newspapers will know that I just called the National Post not a major newspaper. Oh, yes. Now, the... Three stories. Uh, There was one story going into his drunken and coke-fueled antics at his favorite uh, nightclub, Music, with whom uh, that's Music with a K.
1: Should you want to go? Yes, he's
0: buddy-buddy with the uh, owners there, and that is a club that is actually run on public land on the exhibition grounds and therefore requires all sorts of uh, municipal grease, to uh, grow his business. And he's actually, uh, the owner of this club is actually registered as a lobbyist. That's the extent to which he continues applying to the city for uh, various advantages. Uh, one of them, for example, he managed, uh, with the help of other counselors on the crazy right wing fringe of council, to get other techno events banned from exhibition place because, of course, kids will die if you let anyone intend to
1: rave. You will learn all you need to know about the dangers of, uh, being thirsty and 20. Exactly.
0: So we had a bunch of stories about his, uh, series of, uh, crazy nights there, uh, where he was, uh, there's a story where he's overheard puking and, uh. He was uh, <laughs> well, seen...
1: Well, in, in fairness, that could just be any day. That could just be any day. I mean, you know, you, you're, you, you're putting down all those all those uh, jerk chicken fingers or whatever. There's going to be puking, regardless of what else oh, you've been up This to. is
0: a Godzilla story, and we're starting with the bit where the ripple appears on the water okay, and the boy moves. Right, fine. And that's all you get for those ten minutes. Right, um, yes, and
1: then Brian Cranston, blah, 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 right. et, cetera, et cetera. And
0: then he's seen uh, doing uh, lines of coke, and awesomely, uh, Justin Bieber, another troubled import of the land of the silver birch, uh, Appears in this story as well.
1: This is this is like a this is like a, a Marvel team up.
0: This is like uh, the Superman versus Batman movie that's coming out, right? Um, and so Ford, who uh, no matter what his state of intoxication, always has an unerring instinct to get his photograph taken, uh, <laughs> senses the, the presence of the Biebs at this club and seeks him out in order to get a photo op. And Justin Bieber shades him. Ford approaches and. Uh, uh, Justin says, hey, have you got any crack with you? And so uh, Ford turns red, becomes uh, furious, stomps off in, in anger. And, and I think, again,
1: I want to say that Justin Bieber asking for crack and Rob Ford turning red, that could happen every day.
0: But it's, it's especially colorful and and right. and beautiful. There's <laughs> yeah. there's color to the story. You're, you're painting a picture. So we have that and you'll note that I'm working my way up. So yeah. that's the, the, the one story that came out in one of the papers. Another story, a uh, uh, person audiotaped Ford's drunken, obscene, ethnic and gender and orientation slur-filled series of uh, ranting conversations at a local restaurant, and then immediately turned uh, the tape over to another newspaper. This was someone who was saying, well, I'm a Ford supporter. I want him to smarten up. I think there might be more smartening up that needs to be done, but he did the right thing and turned this over. And so this is just full of just freaking vile Invective and and racism and homophobia and um, he says more awful things about his wife, poor woman. And uh, you know he suggests that uh, he's uh, forced her to watch while he's uh, had sex with other women. And and you know and, conduct uh, unbecoming a mayor, yeah, sort of. unbecoming un- a, a human, un- frankly. Right. All um, right. Fair enough. And if you uh, want to think of a uh, ethnic slur, uh, uh, including you know the the hundred pound bomb, mm-hmm. it's there. Uh, And it even, you know, uh, tells, uh, uses one to the guy who turned the tape in, uh, who he uh, used a slur for his Italian-Canadian heritage. So, and so crazy, hateful ramblings. So, on any other day, the Justin Bieber incident would have been the top story, or the slur-filled recorded rant would have been the top story. But that was also the day that Rob Ford announced that there was another new crack video taken just that weekend. So Rob Ford is not a man who learns that it's a bad idea to be videotaped smoking crack. Uh, obviously, from the previous incident, what he learned was I got away
1: with it. <laughs> or or improved the video quality. Uh, right.
0: And so in this case, uh, his uh, I guess perhaps his other crack sources have dried up, so he found a new dealer who came and hung out with him over a period of many uh, hours uh, while... Uh, he and uh, and Sandro Lisi, who you'll recall is the indicted co-conspirator, who the police are obviously trying to get to roll over on Ford. He's the uh, character who uh, threatened and actually beat other people with a lead pipe, or so the criminal indictment alleges. And uh, if. Lisi uh, decided to tell the police that he did so uh, at the explicit or even implicit urging of uh, rob ford of course that would change everything mm-hmm. um so if you are rob ford in this scenario and i hesitate to <laughs> put you in such a terrible psychic such condition an awful scenario
1: how would you want to treat sandro Lisi? i'd probably want to throw him out of a window in canada i mean isn't that what you're supposed to do to people who can roll over on you
0: uh, well, in fact, he he came reasonably close to that. In that, uh, the uh, dealer who took this video, and again, we just have stills from the video and the testimony of the guy who took it, right. because again, he wants more money than any Canadian media outlet is willing to pay for the actual video itself. He says that at one point in this evening of craziness, that uh, Ford physically assaulted Lisi, beat him up to the point where he was Lisi was lying in the fetal position on the ground. Uh, weeping but anyway <laughs> more crack video yeah. so the next day finally the thing that ford staffers wanted him to do the day after the previous crack video a year ago was announced uh, happened and he went to rehab now initially he got on a plane and headed toward you can toward a uh, beautiful chicagoland
1: yes because if there is one city in the world that is renowned for abstemious behavior, it is Chicago.
0: Right. Well, uh, Ford was deemed too noxious even for Chicago, so he arrived at I the... I don't
1: think I like the tone of your voice, sir. <laughs> I'm just building on your previous slam, Ken. <laughs> I, I said, uh, not being abstemious is not being noxious, you Puritan Canadian. Uh, he is noxious. He is noxious, but uh, too noxious for Chicago is, a, is an unfortunate uh, tone of, uh, turn of phrase, sir... So are,
0: are you saying his noxiousness would be perfectly acceptable in Chicago?
1: I, I, I think that uh, we'd, we'd find a way to, to work around it because we're open, welcoming people. But I think what actually happened was that if you are a famous drug user, the border patrol doesn't let you in. Now, if you're a, a normal old drug user, they do. But I think in this particular case, that was the problem.
0: He still got the privilege, though, of not being formally turned down. So he arrived and yeah, right. the border officials, rather than doing what they would have been perfectly empowered to do given their uh, broad authority they could have just said you are banned forever from coming to america mm-hmm. but uh, given his stature uh such as it is they said are you sure you want to ask to come to america even to go <laughs> to rehab and so he withdrew his request uh, and therefore withdrew the ability for them to ban him for life from uh, your uh, verdant shores so at this point, Ford. Uh, goes off to uh, an undisclosed other location, presumably in Canada. And, in fact, last week he was found roaming about uh, cottage country in Ontario, taking photos with people, and uh, we can then, uh, or the reporters have then intuited uh, which rehab he's staying at. Uh, Since then, he has spoken to the media. He has uh, talked about how great rehab is, reminds him of football camp. That's what I remember, yeah. We we will all recall how much he fixates on football as the only Sentimental value uh, worth anything, and uh, he's also uh, sort of quasi blown the covers of other people at the center. Going, yeah, they're are accountants and lawyers, and so he's named reeled off the professions of the other people he's in group <laughs> with. Uh, meanwhile, the real fear is that if Ford's return to the campaign, which he has only suspended his involvement in the campaign, he has not stopped uh, his Merrill bid. Uh, the the Fear among the the sane and good people of Toronto is that his brother, uh, Doug Ford, who is like Rob Ford, except older, somewhat more controlled, and without all of the personal charm. Mm.
1: (laughs) Well, without the personal charm, I'm not sure you have much. (laughs) Exactly. So he's
0: the more overtly thuggish of the Ford brothers. Uh, He's currently a
1: counselor. The, The Bobby to Rob's Jack, if you will.
0: Uh, the, okay. the the mountain to the to the hound,
1: perhaps. Um,
0: <laughs> so the fear is that he would then take over the the campaign. And I'm just and thinking possi- if
1: you're if you're looking at a pair of substance abusing brothers in politics, and one of them's more thuggish than the other, that's the parallel that pops to mind.
0: Right. So at any rate, that is uh, where the the story uh, might take a turn. But I think that uh, I hope anyway that because Doug Ford is is more overtly. The uh, id that Rob Ford is trying to, uh, or the superego that he's trying to drown in alcohol and and, uh, cocaine variants, that uh, he would not be able to make much headway. And in fact, Rob's poll numbers have uh, dropped even further. And so he has basically, uh, you know, his remaining base of support is all among young, suburban, low-information male voters, i.e. the kinds of guys who come out to vote on election day. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is where the, the Rob Ford uh, saga uh, stands. And uh, stands. and yeah. uh, there's always another turn in the road. So uh, who knows uh, what will happen in the next time enough news drops for us to drag Rob Ford back into the creaking reinforced confines of
1: the politics hut. Just real fast, do you think that there is a I mean, if, if let, let's say Rob stays put you know, in his in his football camp with Tater Tot Tuesdays, and you know whatever. And Doug Ford runs. Is Doug Ford capable of unifying the hardcore of the rem- the remains of Ford Nation with sensible conservatives uh, at all, or is it the Conservative Party just like we want nothing to do with any of you people? And we're we've got what was it? Is, is is it's something awesome? It's like John Tory or Steve Boring or something. Yeah, J-
0: John Tory is yeah. the the flag bearer <laughs> for the sane right. And he's in second place uh, next to uh, Olivia Chow, who is the the left candidate. Mm -hmm. And the establishment is currently very, very happy that Doug Ford is not as previously threatened uh, running in the uh, now active provincial election campaign uh, because they view him as radioactive also. And in fact, with Rob gone, he's been doing his own crazy things like suddenly uh, viciously campaigning against a at-risk youth home uh, serving people who have autism and other problems in his neighborhood and saying okay. just vile and horrible things about them and insinuating that, you know, they're sex offenders and, he's uh, you know,
1: kicking puppies and, yeah. um, uh, and so,
0: you know, and that's something that John Tory jumped on really hard, mm-hmm. obviously a, wanting to distance himself from Ford nation and wanting to, uh, start, Sticking forks in Doug as soon as he possibly could, if Doug should happen to try to to, to run himself. Right,
1: um, and and it's not a primary situation, right? You guys are going to run like an open election, and then whoever wins wins. Is that Oh, uh, that's works?
0: right. Which is how Rob Ford got in in the first in the place. first
1: place. Okay, all right. So I'm I'm just um uh, I'm always interested in sort of the the on the ground politics of it as well, as much as I am interested in the delightful clownishness of of your of your mayor, and you know.
0: Yeah, so Thanks the establishment right really desperately wants to uh put Ford Nation on a raft and set it on fire because they're they're toxic and they hurt their uh, brand way more than they uh you know provide any sort of useful weapon against uh their putative opposition on the left.
1: Right. And um uh, and so the 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 27% or whatever it is, how many of yeah, those 25, are 25 or no tw- 22 now. 22 now. How many of those are are sort of positioning voters and are going to wind up voting for the conservatives, regardless of if it's Steve Boring and how many of them are, are, you know, honestly saying, that's what we need more red-faced thugs in charge of stuff. I mean, is there, is there, a, is there a position where the conservatives have to go back into the suburbs and win these guys back? Or is it a position where they're just going to, you know, fall in line and and vote conservative and everyone can move past this ugliness?
0: Um, The remaining members of Ford Nation are uh, unlikely to vote.
1: Okay, so so it's just going to be about uh, driving up turnout everywhere except for Ford Nation, basically.
0: Right, I mean, because the people who are left are the guys who are... You know, they're they're stoner dudes, basically, <laughs> and so you know, uh, nothing that Rob Ford has done, uh, you know, he's the mayor of partying, yeah, and there's exactly. still lots of people who want to get their photo taken with him, semi-ironically. So
1: it's, it's so it's like they're Americans. I mean, that's that's sort of our attitude: is that it since it matters not a whit to anything in America, we, you know, whenever Rob Ford does something hilarious, we just enjoy it in in that way. That it's like, look at that; he's you know, like I, you I say, would say the that mayor you've of had a Pro
0: prouder record of shooting down your obvious flakes in Mad Men, even than, uh, than this. That uh, in every way, uh, Ford is his own category.
1: Yeah, but I, I mean that our our American love for Rob Ford is, is in that same sort of ironic, isn't it hilarious, right. he's and, a and big party goofball way. Right, as and exactly.
0: To... And, and buying into the idea that he is a clownish celebrity figure and overlooking, again, the hardcore of ugliness. Fact after fact after fact of his thuggishness, violence, coarseness um, that they are projecting onto him. Uh, really, they think they're voting for, or
1: in the case of Americans, supporting a, a Chris Farley character. Exactly. You want to see Chris Farley as mayor of Toronto, which, you know, quite frankly, I, I'm open to that. Right. But If yes. it was
0: yeah, but it's somebody who has a dark side even bigger than poor Chris Farley. Well,
1: I mean, think think hard about maybe having a dead guy next time. That can work out really well.
0: I, uh, if those were the two choices, I would definitely go for the dead
1: guy. Okay. okay, well, with that bit of electoral advice, I think we do need to pull back the longboats and wait again for the white whale to spout once more before going undersea.
0: Oh, we can only hope.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
0: Atlas Games,
1: The World of Atultis,
0: Dork Tower,
1: Pro Fantasy Software,
0: and Pelgrain Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Toss some harmonic Lemurian shekels our way via the donate button at Ken and Robin
1: Join such illustrious patrons as Ernie Sawada
0: and Brendan
1: Power. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter Podcast, or Insouciant Bottle of Cote Durone by advertising with us especially if it's an insouciant bottle of Cote de Rome. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height.
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.